Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Leading With Your Gut. I'm your host, Jenna Renee Shulman. Today is Monday, June 22nd. It's about four o'clock Pacific Standard Time here in Seattle. It has been quite a month five weeks, six weeks, something like that since um, since George Floyd's um, death. So much has happened. Um, so much exposure has happened. Um, and so little has happened. Um, specifically meaning you know, cases of police brutality um, that are not... Uh, that are still open. So in the case of Brianna Taylor, we're over a hundred days now, um, where she was murdered by the police and nothing's been done. The only thing that's been done is that one of the officers, um, has been fired, but not a whole lot, a whole lot has been done. Um, you know, I want to reiterate, I've said this in the last couple of, of, episodes that, according to my dad, someone who was born in the 1950s, um, who is a black man, he has said multiple times that he has never seen anything like this ever in his entire life, where he has seen so much solidarity and support, um, particularly from white people who are um, protesting for his life, protesting for my life. Um, and you know, those that are allies and those that are striving to be allies, um, I just want to thank you. Um, thank you for, for listening. Thank you for supporting. Um, and I really hope that this is not a trend. Um, I really hope that this is something that is an ongoing movement, um, because, you know, to dismantle racism is, is a, is not an easy task to do, um, it, <laughs> It's going to take so much in order for for that to happen. But the power is in the support and the power is in the voice. So thank you to everyone who has been so supportive, not just to me and to my family and my friends, but um, to just the movement in general. I definitely I definitely appreciate it. Um, super exciting news. I kicked off my first cohort last Wednesday um, on diving deep into privilege and racism it's a small intimate group. Um, and, and we definitely took off last Wednesday. I did open up a second cohort that will start this Thursday, June 25th. Um, these are all live classes. Um, so, you know, one of the benefits of live classes is that you will be heard and you will have the chance to share stories and experiences of either, um, you know, you being a bystander when racism exists and, and you kind of processing through your privilege. So for those that are unsure of, not sure what I'm talking about, the course is a course on, on privilege and racism. It's, it's really unveiling the curtain to, to our privilege, right? Really kind of, uh, you know, opening up the door, moving the curtain aside um, to what really is going on um, in the world, particularly our country, and what has been going on for a long time. Um, and so this this class is really for people who really want a deeper understanding of of themselves and and to what is going on, so they can really truly strive for allyship and truly strive strive for anti-racism um, in their life, you know, at, at work, at home, in their network, with their family, with their friends. Um, that is what this class is for. It's for people who really want to do better 
um, by knowing better. So how I kind of walk through this course is we go through the different stages, or I like to call it different stages of awareness. So, um, you know, we, in order for anything to happen, one has to be aware of something. Okay. And then we go into the acknowledgement phase, acceptance phase, action phase, or you can call them stages, and then finally commitment. So my, my big belief is that people cannot really pivot or they can't really change or really understand something or even be committed to something unless they fully do the inner work, the internal work. So I see a lot of people, um, and I've heard stories too of people who, you know, are all of a sudden, you know, they 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 want to support and they they want to do the most. They want to do everything that they can. And and my first response is thank you, thanks so much. Um, but I'm not entirely sure if some of these people fully understand, um, the world around them and and fully understand their internal thinking and awareness regards to privilege and racism too. So my whole philosophy is that before you can really change, pivot, get involved, um, and really commit to something for yourself and for the greater good for, for life, you really need to dig deep. You really need to dig deep. Um, in my first class, I gave a really great example of, this is a... A really good example of let's say somebody has um, a severe drinking problem, okay? Um, and let's say they can say, you know, hey, I'm aware that I have a severe drinking problem. And let's say, then they can move on to the next stage of acknowledgement and they can say, I acknowledge that my drinking problem um, affects my health. Health, I acknowledge that it affects my relationships. I acknowledge that it's dangerous, you know, and so on and so on and so on. And then, you know, once I get to the acceptance phase of, you know, well, do I accept the fact that I have a drinking problem? Am I going to accept that? Do I accept the fact that I, you know, I am an alcoholic? Do I accept, accept that? If, if they don't accept that and if they stay in their denial, Okay, then they're never going to move forward to the next phase, which is action and commitment. Okay, so this is this is my philosophy with anything. I know alcoholism is like a that's a tough one. But but really, honestly, for anything, even in regards to like, you know, wanting to lose weight or wanting to change a job or wanting to, you know, leave a relationship or wanting to pursue a dream. It really comes, you know, full circle into these stages of awareness of really understanding what's going on internally and really really acknowledging what you know, don't know, what you're going to do, and and accepting that and moving forward. So with this class, this is exactly what we do. We really dive deep. Um, and and uh, like I said, you know, the, the result of the people who do take my course is that by the end of it, um, they will be way, way more aware and of, of their thinking and of their thoughts and their beliefs and the world around them. And so they can really strive for that type of commitment, commitment that really makes sense for them. Right. Um, and, and my goal and my hope is that this will be lifelong, a lifelong allyship, not just for pe- black people and people of color and indigenous people, um, but for all marginalized groups. Right. You know, allyship does not just end with with racial inequity. It it really continues to go on into other groups as well. So 
really the course is is awareness training. I mean, we definitely go into privilege and white privilege and white defensiveness and racism and systemic racism and, and unconscious bias and, and connecting and communicating, empathizing with people who look different than you and, and, and whatnot. We go through all those different things, but really this is a lot about awareness. So, um, like I said, the, the next cohort starts this Thursday, June 25th. It's going to be 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time um, for the next four Thursdays. So that means the course dates are June 25th, July 2nd, July 9th, and July 16th, 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. It's going to be via Zoom. Um, there is a circle of trust, uh, meaning every experience, you know, and thought and belief is kept within the circle of trust. So I will not be, you know, sharing stories nor anybody else. This is really your time to really stand in your truth. Stand in your truth and own what you have been taught and what you have thought and and own the things you know and things you don't know. Um and and that's where I'm going to really going to challenge you. So this is a this is this is work for people who who really want to dig deep. Um you can enroll in my class. Um I'm going to have a link in the show notes where you can enroll. Um it's a pretty easy enrollment. Um, Like I said, it's four classes. I also will offer um, a Friday office hour as well, um, where people from both classes can jump on and really honestly get one-on-one coaching with me, or they can just share a story or share an aha moment or just sit and listen to the other people in the class, just kind of talk about their aha moments or what they're struggling with. Um, uh, so that's that's also what you get access to. So I will go ahead and put the link in the show notes. If you have any questions whatsoever about the course, um, if you're having a hard time, you know, reading the 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 print um, for the course, if you have any questions whatsoever, please email me. It's info at leadingwithyourgut.com. Um, like I said, I'm Jenna. It's it's info at leadingwithyourgut.com. Calm. So um, that is the that is the news um, news with that. So uh, for today's episode, it's just me again today. Um, so for today, today's episode, I, I, I really want to talk about um, a privilege that I realize that I don't necessarily have or an advantage that I don't necessarily have. And, and I've thought about this in previous years, but now it's really coming to light. Um, my mom, who is white, she, for the past couple of years, has been, she's been very into genealogy. And um, she's been tracing her heritage. Now, she's mostly, um, she's German. She, technically, she's Italian, but the the reports that she's getting is saying that my mom's side of the family is actually Austrian, right? So she's having a lot of fun um, researching and 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 finding her ancestors, her European ancestors, and putting it all together. So that's been really cool to dive into and and kind of see, you know, who my who my family is. Her 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 mom's maiden last name was Tamazoli, which is which is Italian, but apparently. According to the borderlines in Europe, they're really Austrian, okay? So that's been so much fun. However, on my dad's side of the family, 
on um, on the black side of my family, it's been very challenging. And I knew this a couple years ago that it was probably challenging because of slavery and and the whole mess up and fuck up of that. But I didn't really acknowledge that that was a privilege that my mom has that my dad doesn't have. Right. Then I kind of split the two. Right. Like I know can know a lot about the European side, but I don't know a whole lot about my dad's side. Um and as I kind of started doing some research and talking to other black people, um, they said the same thing where it's it's definitely more challenging to find ancestors and to really track them down and trace them. And it has everything to do with s- slavery. So uh, for this episode, I actually want to share a little bit about what I've learned about um my dad's side of the family, my family, um, and really amplify um, a particular voice. And the voice that I want to amplify is my grandmother. Her her name, she's deceased. Um, she died years ago, but her name was Betty Collins. That was her maiden name. Or, you know, she went by Betty Shellman after she um, married my grandpa. But I, I want to share, um, in a little bit, I want to share a story that she wrote um, in a book in the 80s um, that I found that my dad gave to me this last week. Um, and I want to do this one because she's my grandma and I I miss her and I love her. And she was an important figure in my life and in my sister's life and a little bit for my brother. He was a little too young at that age. And obviously she was a huge impact on my dad and my uncle um, in the community with my grandpa she was such a light. And and I want to share her story because I want to amplify her voice. I want to amplify her black voice um, and share the experiences that she that she shared in this book. But before before I get started, just um, a couple other things that I, I have learned recently is um, on my grandpa's side of the family. So my dad's dad, his name is Lindsay. He died when I was, I think I was 21. Um, so he was my last living grandparent. Um, and he was born down south, um, down in Mississippi. And I did know that. And I did know that his parents died at a very young age. Um, and I knew that he was adopted or fostered or something like that at a very young age. So I knew all those things. But what I didn't know until recently was that the rumor is that his parents were actually killed by the Klan. So I had no idea. I had no idea that was the word on the street. So going back to genealogy, it's really tough to find um, his ancestors and his family um, because of the clan potentially killing his parents. So that's kind of t- that's kind of done. I, I'm sure we could try to do some more research and really kind of dig, but that's really very challenging to do. Um, he he did. Uh, I believe he was in the Navy and he did fight in World War II. And I remember he talked with me about it a little bit when I was a kid. He didn't really want to elaborate too much because that was also very traumatic, I'm sure. Um, But after he uh, was in World War II, after he fought, um, that's when he moved up to Washington. And that's when a lot of um, blacks from the South kind of migrated to Seattle. And I learned this from this book that my grandma's in. 
Um, and that's where he met my grandma and that's where they got married and, and, and settled and whatnot. And, and from time to time, you know, when I was a kid and, and a teenager, he would tell me about the different types of discrimination that he faced. And my dad shares, shares some too, um, you know, just being discriminated against at the job that he was at. He was a longshoreman. He loved his job. Like this man loved his job so much, but there's definitely a lot of discrimination there. Um, you know, and, and other incidences, in his life. So that's honestly, for my grandpa's side, that's really kind of the extent that I know about him. Um, that's it, you guys. Like, I don't know much. My dad doesn't know much more, nor does my uncle. So, you know, finding someone or, or using a tool or a software tool or platform to help kind of dig into my grandpa's side would be really cool. Maybe that's something I can invest in, look into and see if we can learn a little bit more. But that's really kind of it um, for the most part with him. Um, so that's my grandpa. And then and then my grandma, um, what I learned, you know, what I knew about her, what I learned about her, she has a little bit more information on her side. She was born in Wenatchee, Washington. Um and her her family, her dad, her dad's name was Fred Collins. He was born in this little small town in in Texas. I think it's called Homestead, Texas. And he wrote a book that I'm actually reading right now. And the book is called um, Fred Collins Shine Book. Okay, guys, I'm going to have to post this on Instagram. Fred Collins Shine Book. And it's Shoe Shining in the Home, especially written for women and children by Fred Collins. And Fred Collins, so this is my great grandfather now. This is my dad's grandfather. He claims that he shined 1.5 million shoes and claims the world's boot black title. And he is the originator of the hot shine. Okay, so I'm reading this book right now that he wrote um, let me look at the date really quick. He wrote in 1941 in Wenatchee. Okay. So what I'm learning about my great grandfather was that he was from Texas. He kind of lived, um, like in the backwoods with his family. Um, there are a lot of brothers and sisters. Uh, everyone kind of had their own kind of like entrepreneurial background. And so Fred started shining shoes when he was nine years old <laughs> and he ended, um, I think he ended school and he was in fifth grade because he was making money. Um, and they really just had to do what they had to do as a family. And then he eventually moved back up to Wenatchee. I'm not at that part yet um, when he moved back up there. But that was Fred Fred Collins. He was a business owner. Um, he was a, someone who was a, a shoe shiner. Um, and he took took pride in it. So that was that was my great-grandfather. That was my grandma's dad. Um, so going on to, you know, what I really want to talk about in this podcast is my grandma. So um, my grandma's name or her name was Betty Collins. Um, Collins was her maiden name and Shelman was her um, married name when she married my grandpa. And um, she was in the book. I'm just turning the pages right now. The book is called Seven Stars in Orion. Um, Reflections of the Past. It's by Esther Hall Mumford. Um, Esther Hall Mumford um, is someone from Seattle. And, and what Esther did, um, she worked for the University of Washington. I actually don't know if she's alive. 
still. Um, she interviewed and connected with many um, black men and women in the Seattle area to just kind of get their perspective on what it was like living here. And so she wrote this book, um, I believe it was 1986, the year that I was born. Um, and so the people that she interviewed, um, she interviewed throughout the like a over over the span of years because some of the people that she interviewed she interviewed them like in the 60s and the 70s um, and these people talked about experiences of being black like in the 1890s you guys like what I'm reading this stuff I'm like this is your experience in the 1890s um, living in Seattle and then and also living um, in other states as well so um, my grandma I don't know when she wrote this she must have written it um sometime in the late 80s, because there's a picture of my sister in here. Um, and my sister was born in 1983. So it was sometime, sometime in the 80s. So I'm going to go ahead and, and read um, her story for you as, as her, as Betty Collins Shellman. Um, and like I said, the, the purpose and the point is to amplify her voice. So here we go. This is in the narrative of my grandmother, Betty Collins Shellman. I was born in Wenatchee, Washington on December 24th, 1917, and I came to Seattle when I was five and stayed there for about three years. We went back and forth from Wenatchee to Seattle, sat Seattle to Wenatchee, and we finally moved to Seattle in the winter of 1936, and I've been here ever since. My mother was a very quiet, feminine woman. She was born March 23rd, 1895 near Spokane, and she was the first child of Philip and Teresa Vonner. She had a sister, Celeste, and a brother, Phil. Mother married when she was 16 years old. She and my father bought a house in Wenatchee. My mother's mother came from Louisiana and settled in Spokane. I don't know where my mother's dad came from. She worked for a family with a whole lot of money. They went to Europe, even. And I don't remember my grandmother going, but my grandmother's mother went to Europe behind the pots and the pans and things. After Grandpa Phil died, Grandma came to live with us, and later on she moved across the street from us. Grandma did housework for a living, and my dad helped her out financially. Mother sewed all of her dresses, and she crocheted all of our tablecloths and capes for us girls. My father was born in Hempstead, Texas, on May 20th, 1895. His parents were Squire and Betty Collins. Grandma Betty was born in slavery. My father left Texas when he was about 14 and just worked his way around the States until he got to Seattle. After Seattle, he went to Wenatchee and worked in a barber shop, but he had his own small shoeshine stand. He liked Wenatchee and he stayed there. He met and married my mother, Melba Varner, there. They had five children, Colleen, Frank, Betty, Grant, and Helen. Colleen, whose real name was Veta Colleen, was the first black child born in Wenatchee. They had a big write-up in the paper, and she was showered with gifts from Wenatchee merchants. My father worked 12 hours a day, weekdays, and about eight hours on Sundays as a boot black. He made a good living. 
He was always among the first to buy things, a washing machine, a vacuum cleaner, electronic piano. In 1941, my father published a book called the Fred Collins Shoe Shine Book. He shined and dyed shoes for a living, so he wrote a book explaining how to do it. He worked on this book at night, after work, and on Sunday afternoon. He would talk about the book, the book. He was a good-natured man, but he could straighten out a person in a minute. He would get right to the point. Although he was brought up in a Baptist church and was a firm believer in God, he seldom went to church because of his work. Every Sunday morning, though, we had to sit down and listen to him tell us the facts of life. We were taught not to steal, ruin other people's property, be respectful towards ourselves and others, and especially respectful towards the elderly. Just about everyone I know was being taught the same way. So few, so few black children got in trouble. Aunt Celeste took us to Sunday school every Sunday. She was a secretary of the church and played the piano. We were christened in the, Meth- in the Methodist church in Wenatchee. Everybody went to the same churches there. We went to two churches, the Methodist church. And when Mrs. Taylor started keeping us, she took us to the church of God. We liked it. It was friendly. And they used to have testimony, get up and tell different things that they shouldn't have done. We kids thought that was really interesting. A couple of black women came through town and preached in a couple of churches. They were good too. And then a black man from Spokane started coming. He preached in the church of God. He came every week for quite a while in the 1930s. When I was very young, around four, my parents divorced. Later, they both remarried and each had another child. My mother had another boy, Charles Neal, and my father had another daughter, Gladys. Wenatchee had a very small population. Every black person there integrated into their class. I went to school in Wenatchee. I was the only black kid, no matter what class I went to. The same way with the rest of the small black population. Well, my sister and my stepsister were in the same class together. And my brother was in there with another girl for a while. But other than that, we all integrated in whatever class we were in. We got along all right. We had times where the principal was on the prejudice side. She didn't consider that she was prejudiced, but I considered it. The kids were all right. There would be some kids that would call you names or something like that. A lot of things went according to the way the school was run. If the principals and the teachers were straight, the kids would be straight. If the principals and the teachers weren't straight, the kids weren't always straight. But then sometimes the kids would be straight. Then they'd say, oh, don't pay any attention to her. She's silly or goofy. One time, a principal made signs, said something about chocolate drops pertaining to what few black children were there. They were advertising some candy they wanted to sell. And she called the black children down to the office and wanted to know, would we carry some of the signs? We thought it was going to say, buy candy or something like that. But then she came up with these signs and it said something about, how's this for chocolate drops or something like that. But we didn't want to carry them. The principal couldn't see anything wrong with it. It looked all right to her. When we first came to Seattle, we moved to Rainier Valley and then moved to Mead Street in what we called Hillman City. 
There were a few other blacks there. It was build up, different than when we lived out there. There were houses and there were open spaces. I remember we used to go in big lots and climb trees, hang down from them and all that. There were snakes out there too. There was a big lot on the side of our house and in the springtime I used to go looking for snakes. There'd be a big pile of them crawling all over each other. In the winter of 1936, it was pretty bad over there. People were walking in the streets and begging for anything, a dime, a quarter, or a nickel. I don't know if they bothered to ask for a quarter, but just anything. Penny to go with four cents, something to get a cup of coffee with that. People didn't have any place to stay, and relief was in full sway. They used to give people vouchers instead of giving them money. My mother used to take a voucher and go to the public market, and there'd be certain places where they'd say, take a voucher, and she'd buy food, and then she'd have to give them a voucher. And the guys who took the vouchers didn't treat people exactly like they should. They acted like they were better than the person they were getting the voucher from. We just took it and went on, talked about them later. Back in those days, though, we didn't seem to worry so much about locking our doors. I guess everybody knew there was nothing in there anyhow. In Wenatchee, we had to lock our doors because people would come and try to open the doors. One night I was laying in the bed and I couldn't hear them trying the door, trying their best to get in, but they couldn't. It was during the Great Depression. People would ride the rails. They would get in the boxcars and they would ride them and on top of them and they'd go from one town to another. Then they'd get to a town and apparently someone was there to tell them which house to go to because they always seemed to know which house to go to and ask for something to eat. I often wondered, though, why people would make them work first and feed them later instead of feed them and then make them work, unless maybe they figured out that after they fed them, they wouldn't work. Because when they'd come to the house, they're probably so hungry, it's hard to work. They would cut wood and do all sorts of things. Mrs. Willie Taylor in Wenatchee would set a table, put a white tablecloth on it, and set it under a tree. If the weather's real nice, she'd have a big pitcher of iced tea and she'd have the, she would have the very best of food. She liked to cook and she'd fix it up just like you're going to a real expensive restaurant. Everybody that came and asked her for something to eat, she would do it up every time. She remembers having been hungry herself when she was a kid. Now, sometimes, if somebody came and they didn't look like she liked them, she wouldn't put them under, she wouldn't put them under the tree. She had an old raggedy porch and it had some vines all over it. I think it had grapes on it and she'd set them up under this raggedy porch and they would eat there, but the food would still be good. She had a lot of land there and she grew her own food. She had a very big garden and she smoked her own meat. She had a little smokehouse there and she had a root house, something like a cellar, only it wasn't connected to the house and she had everything under there. She'd have all kinds of food that she canned. She worked hard. She worked all the time. She had a husband and a daughter who was deaf and mute. She had another daughter who died, and then she had a couple of cousins that lived there. They wouldn't dare leave there the, the way that she cooked. Most of the other black people there had their own homes, and some of them were sort of hit by the, by the Great Depression. They didn't necessarily live fancy, but people over there gathered in the summer and the winter so that when winter came, there was something to eat. People helped one another, too.
that's another thing. Somebody didn't have, somebody would try to help them. And it wasn't to help them so they would say, I did so-and-so for such-and-such. They would just help them out of the kindness of their heart. Everybody was hit during the, during the Depression. Even though we ate, people wore their clothes a little longer or didn't buy the best of clothes. During the Depression, my dad helped many people, although his work was very slow. We were taught at a very young age to help others. One day, a man told my dad that he and his family had nowhere to live. We had a small house on the back of our lot, and my father let them move in. They stayed for about three years. When I came to Seattle, my aunt had a job at the repertory theater. My brother Frank was there, too. She worked behind the scenes. I don't know if she pulled the curtains or something like that. She had two children. One was in school, one was out. So instead of going to school, I took care of the younger child for her. I eventually went back and graduated from Garfield in 1937. It didn't really look like much of a future as far as going to college at that time. First of all, it took money and we didn't have it. I wasn't by myself either at that time. A lot of people felt that way. When a person goes to school now, they usually prepare for college and they say, Oh, I'm going to take such and such course, and then I'm going to be a doctor, or I'm going to be a lawyer, I'm going to be this, I'm going to be that. But they're in a depression. First of all, there weren't many jobs. And secondly, we knew we didn't have any money to go to college. So we didn't really prepare ourselves exactly in that order. That's the reason a lot of people went later on when they got a chance to go to college. They'd figured out what they wanted, and they went on later, maybe when the kids were grown. Right now, I'm taking music. I can think of a thousand things I would like to take up. Black people, as far as I could see, most of them were doing menial work. They were cleaning, cooking, and washing toilets. Some of them had a few other jobs, but it was the same old, same old as the saying goes. I got a job sewing. They had what they called a sewing room. They didn't have just black people then. President Roosevelt's wife started a thing where the girls could work two weeks at a time so we'd be one week on and two weeks off. We sewed for the hospitals, gowns and mattress covers. Then the young men would fill the mattresses. They'd take the covers and fill them up. I learned a lot about that because I didn't know how to sew at all. There was a lady who came and showed us how to do it when we first got started. Some of the women knew how to sew real good, could do anything, and some didn't know anything like me. I used to take some money and give my mother some money. The prices were so much lower than they are now, to the money went much farther than it does now. I gave my mother some money and then I got a credit account. I could dress myself and dress my sister for a while until she got a job there too. Mrs. Roosevelt came to Seattle to visit her daughter Anna when we were taking the NYA classes. She had such a gracious presence. We all gathered around her and had our picture taken. My sister was in it. I was in it. Lots of people were in it. Her daughter stepped aside so that we could have our picture taken with her. We had parties. If we were going to have food, everybody brought something. We went to dances, but the dances would be real cheap. I remember a bunch of us got together to go to a dance and we didn't have enough money. Back in those days, we used to have what we called car tokens because they had streetcars. We were short about a dime, so somebody threw in a car token, and we asked the guy at the door if they would take his token. 
He hemmed and hawed a while, and then he would say, yeah, and he would let us in. It was over at the tennis club where the Y is on, the 20, is on 23rd Avenue. We used to go there to dance. We had 40 black kids at Garfield High School. Although we could scatter out and about if we wanted, when we had the assembly, we used to all sit together, and there would be about 40 black kids all sitting together in the back. It was by choice just so that we could get back there and talk. They were going to have a fun fest or something, and different nationalities were supposed to have a dance according to their nationality. We black students couldn't come up with a dance because we didn't have anything to identify with. We didn't know any African dance, so we took the Indian dance. I don't remember any Indians being there, but I remember different ones saying, what did you take that dance for? You're not an Indian so we were really at a loss. I think we've come a long way, and that's really good in my opinion. We knew we had some kind of culture. We just didn't know what it was, just like the dance. We hadn't seen an African dance, so we didn't know it, but we knew there was something. We were really conscious of the fact that we didn't know it, especially when we were told to do it. But I think black people have come a long way. You see, what Swahili classes close in African dances now. Back then, we didn't even know the name Swahili. We didn't know any of that. So I think we've come a long way. During the war, my husband, Lindsay, was in the Navy on a ship that docked in Bremerton. Bremerton. When I met him after the war, he was out of the Navy. He was from Biloxi, Mississippi. I worked in, in the Bremerton Navy shipyards, sharpening drills. It was a pretty nice job, and I got along with everybody except people that were prejudiced. We had a little bout with a woman over there in Bremerton who made the remark, I'm sick and tired of working with them, N-word women or N-word wrenches. I don't know who was, she was talking to. She just threw it out in the air. There was another lady that goes to Seattle Community College now that was there, and she heard it. I came in right after it and we took it up, went to the boss and told him because she worked in my shop. He mumbled around there, wasn't going to do much about it. So we went to another person over the, bo over the boss and he hemmed and hawed and wasn't going to do much about it either. So we took it to another person that was about the highest person that we could find to take it to. So she got laid off for about two weeks. And when she came back, she was all right. She changed. When I left, she got a little party together for me and she bought me a present and I was rather surprised. It takes struggle to change anything and the employment picture has changed because you see people doing things that you didn't see black people doing before. You see them going different places to work where they weren't going before. Before, with a handful of black people, they could go and demand something, and people would look and see that few little black people, and it didn't mean anything to them. Today, they'd say, oh, shoot, you know. So there wouldn't be any changes. But now, with more black people here, there could be more changes. Back in the 40s, one of the leading newspapers wrote a whole lot of stuff about black people who had come to Seattle to live. And I really think it was written to separate the northern black people from the southern black people to keep them from being together. I really believe that. It was in the paper. Sort of like divide and conquer. They wrote it, they wrote it all up. Northern black this, southern black that. They didn't say black then. They said Negro colored. 
And the idea was to separate one from the other so that they'd always be fighting and clashing and carrying on. It was a whole lot of bunk. When black people first started coming in, it wasn't that way. They were just people coming in. But afterwards, when someone put something in their heads, then this began. In the 40s, my Aunt Celeste and some other people used to go in different restaurants and they wouldn't be served. They'd be straightening it out because people had decided to sort of break down the discrimination. They would get a friend, men and women, couples, my aunt and her husband, a white couple, and they'd have the white couple walk in and make reservations. And then they'd come back and there'd be a white couple and a black couple. And then the man would stop and say, I'm sorry, we don't have any room. And then the white woman would say, well, I have reservations. They always had to break it down some way. Sometimes there'd be an argument, but eventually they'd get served. For a while, black people could go any place in Wenatchee to eat. Then one day, some black people went into a certain small restaurant to eat, and the man behind the counter started picking an argument with some of the black people in there, so they ignored him. The more they ignored him, the more they tried to pick an argument. Finally, he reached around the counter and came up with a hammer, and he was going to hit some of the guys on the head, so they had a fight. In other words, he instigated a fight. Then the next day, they had signs all over Wenatchee. We cater to white trade only. That was back in the 30s. It was before we moved to Seattle. We could eat anywhere, but we didn't usually do it because most black people eat at home. It's a good thing to see more black people because we had more strength. We could demand more if we wanted to demand because we had more people to demand with higher jobs, different classes of jobs, moving into homes. So frankly, I was glad to see him coming. So that was my grandmother, Betty Collins Shellman, sharing a little bit about her life in Wenatchee and in Seattle. Um, I'm glad I had the opportunity to read that. I'm glad I had the platform and the audience to read that too. Um, my grandma, from what I remember from her, I, she died when I was 14. But like I said, she was a very kind, very gracious, very loving woman. Um, she loved music. She sang. She played piano. Um, she loved listening to old records. Um, she loved Nat King Cole. And she was just one of the most gracious people I ever met. She went to so many protests here in Seattle. And um, sometimes she would take my sister and I to the protests. And she took my dad and took my uncle. And she always fight, fought for civil rights. She always wanted to stand on the right side of civil rights, regardless of what it was. Um, and that's what I remember from her. When I think about someone who has courage and someone who has, you know, strong intuition and, and someone who listens to their voice, that was definitely my grandma. She, you know, she, she definitely had the confidence inside of her and um, I definitely shown. So that is this week's episode of Leading With Your Gut. Thank you so much for, for listening um, to my story and listening to Betty Collins' story. I, you know, I, I wish her and my grandpa were here to see everything that's going on. They would be, they, I don't even know if they'd know what to say. Um, so like I said, to those people who are um, fighting for us, fighting for black people, um, thank you so much. Um, please don't stop <laughs> at all. 
Um, please keep educating yourself. Please become aware of, of your thoughts, behaviors, past, present. Um, please be on the right side of history. And uh, click on the link in the show notes if you want to join my course coming up on Thursday. Thank you so much. Have a good one.